I'm Shabal Rashid, and I have a very good friend of mine, a good mentor, um, and a good teacher. Um, before I dive into that, I want to welcome all the listeners and viewers. We are on Facebook Live uh, via the VOC uh, platform as well as the Perusia page. We are also live on voc.org.au, the audio. Uh, those listening in, in the car, 17.01 a.m., very welcome. Those on the Cradio platform, very welcome. And just anyone around the world just tuning in on the website, uh, you're all welcome. Feel free to post any questions as we go through this interview. Uh, Facebook Live allows us to post. I'll have the stream in front of me and I'll ask on your behalf any questions. We are with one of the world's best apologists, and I don't say that lightly. Uh, who is he? It is none other than Robert Haddad, author of 10 books, including bestseller Defend the Faith, which uh, this is one of our bestsellers absolutely of all time, I think, and uh, it's a substantial um, piece of work. And we're going to talk about the importance of reviving apologetics in today's world, and he joins me live right now. Hello, Robert. Good morning, Shabal. How are you? Doing really well. Thank you for joining and uh, and coming on the show. You're uh, welcome. You're no stranger to the apologetics world. Uh, you've been doing it for some time, and I think uh, it would be really good to sort of theme this whole interview around the importance of apologetics and why it's even more important today than ever. Um, could you maybe we'll start from the beginning, your involvement, when what when you saw the need of apologetics could you touch on just a little bit of what got you involved with apologetics to begin with? Um, when I was a teenager, when I was 15, I was invited by a friend of mine at school named Stephen to go to the Billy Graham crusade at Sydney Randwick Grace course in May 1979. And that's what I call my first uh, conversion experience to a, a more consistent practice of Christianity slash Catholicism. And after that event, uh, and it was a, an event that really had a big impact on my life, got more associated with uh, Baptists and Sydney Anglicans at Sydney at school first, the Interschool Christian Fellowship, and then at law school through the Evangelical Union. And those people were very passionate about their faith but, and very anti-Catholic, though, but gently anti-Catholic. And for years, for about the next six years, I had a lot of exposure to anti-Catholic comments or questions, and I just wanted the answer to those questions. And I just thought, where are the answers? The Catholic Church is so big an organisation, so big a church, it must have answers to all these questions or objections. So that was the foundational motivation for looking for the answers. And uh, did you know um, where, so what, what was the next step um, uh, to where to search to find those answers? What, did, what could you trust? Did you know what to trust in those early years? Well, um, the answer to that came through my second conversion, as I call it, my more <laughs> conversion. When I was at law school in final year, I, I fell into depression and I dropped out of final year. And in the next calendar year, which was 1986, I was visiting a friend's house, a guy named Fabian. Now, he was a colleague of mine at law school, a Chinese background uh, individual. And while I was upstairs in his office, I found sitting on a little table a book, and it was a very old book. It was an original copy from the late 19th century called The Question Box by, by Father Conway, and oh, it was 440-odd yeah. pages in length. I looked at it, and it was literally question and answer format, 
And it looked very solid, the answers. And I said, look, I'm going to take this home and read it. And I read it in two days, and it was an absolutely outstanding book. It was my road to Damascus, so to speak. After that book, reading it, I never had any more doubts about Catholicism because all the questions, the answers were all based in Scripture. And I got introduced to a new series of men I never heard before called the Church Fathers. So I became convicted then in Catholicism and particularly around the Eucharist because there I saw all the doctrinal, scriptural and patristic foundations for Catholic belief in the Eucharist, which is important to me because hanging around good Baptists and Anglicans who didn't believe in the real presence and transubstantiation but held this wingly and symbolist view of the Eucharist, I finally had the answers that I've been looking for for years. Wow. And... uh so, yeah, it's interesting because you've got good friendships at the time and you want to obviously respect your friends, but you also want to defend your position. And, and so you're balancing how do I um, present the truth to my friends? How do I understand this? And it must be very new for you at the time going through them, but was it just giving you that conviction every time you found an answer? Um, did you go back right away to them and said, look, this is what I discovered? And, and it, was it a bit of a, a back and forth um discussion how, how did that play out with your friends yeah played out actually probably i took a, the wrong view i took the wrong way out in the sense that i be, i became associated with very strong traditionalist catholics and as a consequence of that i just felt there was it was necessary for me at the time to totally cut off all my links with protestants particularly the Baptists and the Punchbowl Baptist cricket team that I played for, et cetera, et cetera. So I, after discovering the answers, in hindsight, I reflect and probably think what I regret is that I didn't take these answers back to my Anglican and Baptist friends, particularly Stephen, because Stephen was very adamant the first three years, centuries of Christianity, the first 300 years, we evangelical Protestant and that Catholicism was Romanism that came post-Constantine, a hybrid of Christianity and paganism. But what I discovered was that through the church fathers, the early church, the first centuries were Catholic essentially, particularly on the Eucharist, the sacraments, the papacy, devotion to Our Lady, etc., etc. And I never took those discoveries back to my friend Stephen or any other Protestant friend at that time. Okay, okay. So um, you you did um, get a hunger for the faith. Your your personal faith journey deepened and. Uh, you were convinced by this and, as you said, you joined all these traditional groups. You then did, and that's when I, I met you. You, you, you got very active within the Catholic Church. Could you tell us about um, your transition, I guess, from a law student to then now wanting to actually speak and teach the Catholic faith? Um, what happened there in that transition? Well, the next step after reading the, the question box was to read the faith of our fathers. And my primary spiritual reading in 86, 87, 88 was either apologetics works or lives of the saints. And the faith became very, very central in my life. I began to go to daily mass, pray the daily rosary, uh, and always reading about the Catholic faith and hanging around Catholic friends. I never had any intention of transitioning out of law in those years, 86, 87. I worked at um, for a, a law firm in the eastern suburbs doing conveyancing and debt recovery. Then I did two years in Westpac Banking Corporation, Legal Services and Legal Division. It was while I was in Legal Division, which was a promotion where I was actually looking after cases that Westpac Banking Corporation were involved with, that the next step happened in my life. I, 
I fell ill in 89, in June, July, August 89. I came with a severe bout of scrupulosity, which is a oh, wow. psychological order relating to exaggerating the notion of sin, etc. I didn't have that, the great spiritual uh, advice I needed at the time. So I was managing myself, and that's why I was getting into trouble with this issue. But it was while I was away from work during this minor crisis that um, I went down to my local parish and St. Charles, and I met the, the monk who was running the monastery at the time, and I said to him, look, I'm, I've been in law for eight years, but I don't really want to stay in law. Uh, do you have something else for me to do here? And I had no idea what I was really asking or what I was wanting with that question, and he offered me a job in the new school. And St. Charles College at the time in 1989 was just K-7. Was in its first year of secondary school, and for some reason, I just took up that offer. I embraced it and I ran with it, and I never looked back. I mean, it was just, it was very exciting the idea of look, I can live out my faith by teaching it to young people, and I said yes to that instantly, even though I had no qualifications, no training, no experience whatsoever. I started teaching at St. Charles on the 1st of February, 1990, just as a year seven and eight teacher, geography, history, and RE, and it went from there. Well, <laughs> well I, I can tell you, I mean, my wife is a former student of that of school and many, many friends are, are, I've uh, gained over the years who have been former students of yours and, uh, and they all point back to a time. Many of them may have fallen away from the faith, but they all come back to their roots and they remember your name specifically gets mentioned in their, in their journey saying, you know, what, but Mr. Hadad taught us, you know, Mr. Hadad, I, I hear your name pop up all the time and the impact you've had on those students has just been, um, only God knows, you know, uh, it's been amazing. Um, I just I, want to say, yes, Shab, if I just jump in there. Yes, sure. I, mean, I had no background, no training, no qualifications. That was probably an advantage. I just went into that school with one intention, to teach the Catholic faith as it really was. Yes. No hard, full on, a bit black and white, you know, talk about, saints and, and, and heroes and martyrs and talk about heaven and hell and talk about Jesus Christ and talk about Our Lady and devotion. So I wanted to make it clear that you know, I knew the faith wasn't, be, wasn't being taught that well in other institutions and other schools, and I said, that, that's not going to happen where I am. And so I held this belief, give it to them straight. If they abandon it, they'll come back to it one day because they've got something to come back to. Amen to that. Amen to that. Well, uh, and, and it's a good point. And you, you, you bring in um, your own struggles. You're, it's authentic to them. They see that this is real for you. Um, uh, and, and I think students can see through teachers if, if the teacher doesn't believe in what they're teaching. Uh, and, and certainly in your case, they, they could see that you did believe in the content that you were delivering. That makes a huge difference. That um, makes all the difference, I think, yes. Sharp. Yes. That's, I mean, we concentrate so much on professional development you know, academic qualifications, pedagogies, textbooks, curriculum, outcomes. In the end, the vehicle of authentic delivery of the faith is the teacher in the classroom, the witness, the yes. example. But why should kids take up prayer, take up um, fasting, take up going to mass, doing good, avoiding evil, obeying the commandments? That's difficult in today's world. They'll take that up if they see examples in front of them of people who take that up. That's a, that's a very important point. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I um, from experience, I went to a Catholic primary school, and I don't think uh, I I can remember it. Uh, and, and in fairness, and this is uh, this is thirty over thirty years ago, but in, 
I, I can't remember of one that uh, really took the face seriously. You could always tell um, that uh, that it's it was just sad, another subject. It's a very sad thing. They're professional Catholics. Yeah, they're Catholic yeah. in name. They're Catholic in some type of upbringing. But the fervor, the fire is not there. What you need in the classroom is faith and fire. Yeah, and yeah. what transform the next generation. Absolutely. So, so true. Um, this is very interesting because any teachers watching, please feel free to comment and, and, and chime in or um, anyone with this experience. But you developed as a teacher, uh, you were developing your own uh, lesson plans. You were developing uh, over the years. Can you tell us about that process? Because that's actually turned into uh, what we, we talked about as one of the best-selling books at the moment. But those early, uh, can you tell us, uh, yeah, those lesson plans that you developed? Well, the, the lesson plans, I was actually literally developing my lessons the night before each class, wow. and I was writing them. And concentrating on my RE lessons, I was actually using the book by Archbishop Michael Sheen, Apologetics and Catholic Doctrine, the original one from the 30s and the 40s, not the one that was later revised by Father Peter Joseph. Wow. And I... Um, and. Um, this was, uh, this was handwritten lessons. I'll just photocopy, hand them out to the kids in class, and we'll go through them word by word, sentence by sentence, paragraph by paragraph, and make sure I finish each lesson in the time allotted. And later on, in 94 onwards, I decided, well, okay, because I'm learning how to use a desktop computer, I'm learning how to type, I'm going to retype my notes, but I'm going to retype my notes and add the Catechism of the Catholic Church to every lesson. And then I'm going to add the Church Fathers to every lesson. And then I said, well, I'm going to bind these lessons into one, you know, booklet with a, you know, one of those spring bindings. Yep. <laughs> so I'd create booklets and then it just, I'm going to write extra lessons. And then it got bigger and bigger and bigger until we got eventually, but from 1994 to 2012, we've got to the version of Defend the Faith we've got now. Well, wow. <laughs> um, did you uh, uh, find the, the students, we're talking about teenagers here, did they take on... Um, did they receive that content uh, well? How, how was the reception at the time? Were you sort of always adapting and, and, and just hit, engaging how they took well, it on? I think, I think it was being received well. I, I just said, look, from the start, I'm going to do apologetics, 10 lessons in Year 7, 10 lessons okay. in Year 8. I took a risk. I wasn't thinking I was taking a risk at the time. But I think because I was teaching Lebanese, people from southwest Sydney, from Bangstown, Punchbowl, Greenacre, Lakemba. And, you know, there's a lot of, um, you know, these people have a lot of contact with non-Catholics, anti-Catholics, people of the Islamic faith. They they saw a version of Christianity or Catholicism they were not exposed to in primary school. You know, it wasn't just that soft, meek, mild, but it was rather combative in a sense. Uh, probably... I, I don't know if I was a little bit too combative, but nevertheless, I wanted the presentation of the faith to be masculine orientated. I believe that if you're going to be teaching boys and you're going to overly feminize RE, you're going to, they're not going to be interested in that. They want to be men practicing their Catholic faith. So they wanted, so I gave them a strong version of what it is, a manly version of Catholicism. Of course, half the kids in the classroom were still females and probably the more intelligent section of the classroom <laughs> were females. Um, the only negative pushback I got once was from a girl who was shocked that I mentioned hell. And, and when she started in year seven, because you never heard about it in, in primary school. And wow. we focus on hell, but you've got to mention it. If you're not mentioning it, 
then you're not teaching the gospel in its completeness. And what did Jesus save us for? Save right. So we got to know what damnation is to understand what salvation is. That's a very good point. Very good point. Um, yeah, I can't wait to dive into to the juicy question soon, but uh, we're just sort of following your story. This is very important for people to know the background. But as you, um, in your career, you actually furthered on, you did, you actually left teaching for a while and then you came back. But can you tell us about that time? And, and, uh, and we, yeah, you were, you were pretty much hand, uh, invited, right? If I remember the Archbishop of Sydney at the time, um, invited you to a, a, a special role. Um, could you tell yeah. us about that? After 12 years at St. Charles, um, I got a shock one day. It was somewhere in August 2001. I just got a phone call. A phone call came to the school and the secretary in the truly Lebanese and Charles manner just shouted out the window, hey, Robert, there's a phone call for you. I was doing playground. <laughs> and I said, from who? And she said, Archbishop Pell. And I was shocked. I said, Archbishop Pell, why on earth is he ringing, is he ringing me? I didn't know him personally then. I had met him a couple of times, but they were just incidental. Anyway, eventually I went to see him. And um, firstly, when I rang him back, he, I said, can I ask what this phone call is about, if you don't mind? And he said, yes, I want to offer you a job. And I was rather terrified because I did not want to leave St. Charles. I had originally intended to be at St. Charles for my entire you know, professional career, at least 40 years. And so the thought of leaving St. Leaving Charles was, was fearful. But he offered me this job to set up a chaplaincy at University of Sydney. Um, at first I thought, well, that's not a real job. Uh, but then it's a bit airy-fairy, but no, no, quite the contrary. It was a magnificent challenge. And the chaplaincy now there in 2020 is just has been so fruitful for the church and so fruitful for the Archdiocese of Sydney in so many ways, particularly vocations of the priesthood, religious life, marriage, conversions. It's changed the lives of so many people. And I began that year 2002 with Anthony McCarthy and some other staff and it was hard work, but it was real evangelical missionary, Catholic missionary work in the most secular of environments and hostile environments. And the people who have succeeded me in that task, in that function, there in that apostolate, have done a wonderful job to just take it to the next level. Yeah, that's. Um, I agree. Uh, right now, Tony Matter is, is at the helm right now and uh, doing great work there. And, um, yeah. And you yeah. have to people leading that who believe in apologetics. Yes. I'll say this, 18 years since the foundation of that uh, uh, mission there, I have great joy to, and I have to say this as a, as a family man and a parent, that my two older boys are now at that university and participate in that chaplaincy and get the benefits of it. Um, yes. and, yeah, good point. Wow. Yeah. Uh, just a comment. I mean, we mentioned the name and we've got to say it in the environment we're in and it's hit the news over the last couple of weeks, but Archbishop Pell, who's now Cardinal Pell, um, it, look, it's great news to hear that uh, he's out of um, prison now. Um, but uh, just an insight about you being directly appointed, working under him, uh, and I think it's important for people who have never met him. He wanted to employ people who could get those results and make a difference. Well, he, um, yeah, he, you've got to get to know him. He, he really is someone who... Unfortunately, the media just seemed to uh, uh, put this negative light on him and people only see one side of, of Cardinal Pill that's already been through a, a, a judged lens, a lens that is already um, negative and incorrect as well if they don't yeah. know him. The um, lens bubble is prejudiced. Yes. 
prejudge. They've got an image of him and they project that image to others, which is not true. And I know of cases of people who say they've met Cardinal Pell for the first time, they've travelled with him overseas on a pilgrimage. I'm talking about Sydney Catholic School staff who are actually pleasantly surprised at what he's really like. When the, when you dispel the fog, the myth that's created by the media and others around him, no, they saw a side to him which is very human, very affable, very friendly and, and, and very Catholic. Yes, amen. We'll, we'll, we'll continue to pray for him and hopefully... You know, he could in the next in the next few years of his life as a cardinal and can um, live. Hopefully, they keep, keep him in peace right now, and he can just get on with what he does best. And um, do, do you have any like, any insight? Yeah, what what more can he do right now in this stage of his? Uh, well, he's he's, he's well. still a voting cardinal. He's mm-hmm. in his late seventies, but there are a lot of people in the church, and they're, they're older than that who are still very active. I'm looking forward to his book when it's released. His manuscript, which is three hundred thousand words. Now, wow. to give the size a comparison, defend the faith, which is five hundred pages, is about one hundred and fifty thousand words. So this is going to thousand page book when it comes out i'm looking forward to buying it and we need to continue to support him and support him to be active in the church and contribute positively to the church here in australia if not overseas as well because i don't believe in retirement when it comes to the faith i don't believe in retirement when it comes to the church we need to keep living and fighting and dying with our boots on that's my opinion can i uh, i might i might just do a little uh quick plug at where where people were not promoting his books, and I, and I understand while I was going for the court case, we, we've been promoting him right through. Uh, we've got um, two of his books, and they're on our website now, and um, and I encourage you, I'll put the link, but please support uh, Cardinal Pell's work. Um, he's on there. Just search Cardinal Pell uh, on, on the Perusia page, and you'll see the, the two books, a soft cover, hard cover, whichever you like, and we've got them on sale right now. We really want to encourage people to see the, the mind of this man, and uh, he really is a man of God. Uh, but uh, yeah, oh, that's enough about. Uh, we're praying for him, and I really want to get into the nitty gritties of your uh, work here because we're, we're coming up to a very important time in, in, in this in this culture. The, tell us, after you um, just very quickly on your career, you you didn't stay in the, the university chaplaincy forever. You were you were there for a few years. You went back to teaching, is that right? And then yeah, moved on. Uh, Two thousand and two, three more years at St Charles. Yep. Uh, and again, I thought I was going to stay there for the rest of my professional career. Sadly, at the end of 2005, I, I felt the need to move on. It was rather unfortunate, but God was still guiding my life. And, and I went back to the Cardinal and he was very kind and generous and offered me that job back at chaplaincy. So I did 06, 07, 08 back at chaplaincy at UCID and UNSW. And we moved into Macquarie University and we worked on getting hundreds of students to go to World Youth Day. And late 08, the Cardinal invited me to take up the position as Director of Confraternity of Christian Doctrine. Um, the Archdiocese of Sydney, which is the agency that supports the volunteer catechists in our public schools. I was rather reluctant at first to take that up, but in hindsight, I was so grateful that I did, that I was offered that position. It was a wonderful experience meeting the best people in the church, catechists of the salt of the earth, and their missionaries, and they're in very difficult context in public schools. And I was a public school student, and I had catechists in the 70s, so I appreciate the value of their work from both aspects as a student and as a professional serving their needs. Um, after that, then I uh, saw 
uh, a need to move on again for a new challenge, and that was to take up the position of head of new evangelization at then the Catholic Education Office, which is now Sydney Catholic Schools Office. And in that role, I had responsibility for faith formation of all staff in, in all our schools uh, and offices and for youth ministry and for family educator project. And yeah. it's a great it's an absolutely ex wonderful, exciting challenge in every respect. And I hope I can stay in this role for as long as possible. But again, my will is one thing and God's will is another. <laughs> yeah. well, I can't think of a better person in that role uh, to form teachers. How exciting. Um, well, let's talk. You are um, in that whole time. You uh, We've got to talk about this apostle. And this is where I met you, uh, Lumen Verum Apologetics, your involvement there. Uh, the importance of that apostolate and, and what that has done over the years as well. Could you talk about uh, what that was and why it started and then the impact you've seen? Well, around 95, 96, I got involved in two apostolates, which were great benefit. And one was the Centre for Thomistic Studies, and I studied for nine years under Alice Nelson, an outstanding woman, outstanding academic philosopher, theologian. Uh, and the great work of, that was being carried on after their mentor, Dr. Woodbury, Austin Woodbury, the great Marist theologian and philosopher who started his work in the 40s. At the same time, I was invited by another woman, Arlette Bowen, to start up to work with her to provide something for young adults to teach them the faith properly. Arlette was concerned about the fact that so many young Catholics either didn't know their faith or they were being caught up in mystical things which did not have solid grounding or validity, you know, apparitions or visionaries or whatever. So we, she was based in the parish of St. Michael's Belfield and, and she wanted something to get going every week and we agreed on doing something every Friday, 40 weeks a year during the school terms and having lectures, different speakers on different topics, but primarily relating to apologetics and primarily relating to teaching the truth, hence Lumen Verum Apologetics, True Light Apologetics. And these things had a profound impact on the lives of many people. They are small works, but I believe in small works. I believe in that the church is continuing vibrantly in, in so many ways because of the actions of thousands of different individuals starting up thousands of different apostolates and touching lives, dozens of lives. And, and this is what Lumen Verum did. And a person like Arlette Bowen, who was a faithful woman, of, of, who is still a faithful woman, Absolutely. now in her early 80s, had many children and grandchildren, faithful in so many ways. She deserves to be congratulated for uh, uh, this small initiative that has had big impact on a, on a significant number of people. Amen to that. It really has a reputation that it, it um, influenced and, and inspired so many spin-off groups. Uh, I know for sure one classic one was Guardians that that were founded um, in 2001 and that was um, directly inspired by Lumen Verum Apologetics, but many, many, many others and, and people are doing it. What I love about what you just said, seeing many apostolates being born out of this, it was never about making Lumen Verum itself the, the be all and end all. It was about inspiring us to do work in the in the vineyard. And uh, Perusia, I must say, is is, is, is in that mix. Uh, if it wasn't for Lumen Verum and Guardians and now Perusia, it, it wouldn't it wouldn't be born. And uh, it was thanks to those foundations for me personally. And and mm -hmm. and without that, Perusia may not be existing today. So yeah. thank you for the, the groundwork you've done. Two other things about Lumen Verum. It, it also gave the opportunity, a platform for some people to cut their teeth as speakers. 
um, yes. uh, to develop themselves. It certainly helped me to develop myself as an adult educator and also a platform to sell and make visible my books. I mean, you write books, but books can go nowhere. Yeah. Uh, in Australia, it's very hard to market religious books. If you sell a couple of hundred books in Australia, you're doing quite well. But with Lumen Verum, it's a platform. People come in every week, you have your books on display, then later on it became, you know, DVDs and CDs and other things. And people come in, you get exposure, and they buy things and, and they take them elsewhere. So that's Lumen Verum had that small advantage as well. But let's talk about that. that, that uh, it's a good segue into your work as an author. So while you're... You're advancing in your career as a teacher and, and moving in the chaplaincy world. You were doing apologetics, teaching adults as well as uh, teenagers. You were writing as well and, and preparing books. What was the first book? You've got 10 now. Um, what, what, what was the first one you actually completed? What was the first published book of yours? It was an early version of Defend the Faith, just 30. Yeah. That was what the topics uh, you addressed there? Sorry? What were the topics you addressed in that first well, edition? classical ones, starting with the Trinity, the divinity of Christ, um, then looking at other aspects of the authority of the church, infallibility of the church, the papacy, the infallibility of the papacy, Our Lady, her four dogmas, the Eucharist, the Mass, purgatory, statues and images, communion of saints, um, um, you know, I, well, can read, yes. I can read from the index, but all those classical core Catholic topics that are battleground topics, particularly with respect to Protestantism, then later on it will develop and it deal with issues relating to Islamic challenges or new atheist challenges. And this is what we've got to be conscious of when it comes to apologetics. Apologetics in the 21st century cannot be just focused on Catholic versus Protestant. Yes. That's of it it continues to be a very important aspect of it it has to move on to deal with the challenges from islam the challenges from secularism atheism rationalism and post-rationalism or what we call post-modernism and and we'll, i'll move on to that soon enough but you know we're in a world now where people are debating whether truth exists at all whether we can know truth uh. or there's no objective truth, no objective morality. We just create our own truth and our own morality. This is where we're at with the younger generation, and this is the challenge that needs to be um, engaged. Spot on. I want to I unpack some of these topics just quickly. I, I'd like to give a plug for the other books you, you developed. Um, uh, uh, do, you, do you know them in order? I mean, uh, yeah, the, the in order. Us, just yeah. let's go through them. Apostles' Creed. So we looked at the Apostles' Creed in 17 parts. Okay, then we looked at the next book was Law and Life, where we looked at the Ten Commandments, the Law and Life, Sacraments, and um, oh, well, I forget what Sacraments and the Lord's Prayer. Okay, and yes. Lord. then we got the Human Life in the Family, which I converted my year 10 course on marriage, family, sexuality, all these other issues, life issues, life issues like contraception, abortion, IVF, euthanasia, etc. That's in the uh, the family and human life and then we've got of course defend the faith then we've got early church history and these are developments of some of my adult courses where i look at the first four centuries of christianity that's early church history oh, and yes. 
We've got an introduction to the early church fathers, again, another course. These are introductory books because people need to be introduced to these. They don't know anything about these areas. So there's relatively simple, smaller books for people who want to learn from, you know, 101 apologetics, 101 church fathers or church history. Then I've got... Um, uh, my thesis, my first thesis on St. Justin. So that's the case for Christianity. Looking at St. Justin Martyr from the second century, his apologetical methods and arguments and directed to the Roman Senate, the Roman emperors, philosophers and, and dialogue with Trifo, the Jew, etc. I've got answering the anti-Catholic challenge, which was a combined work with uh, Tom Wall from University of Sydney chaplaincy and other students from that chaplaincy to write a response to a Sydney Anglican book by Ray Galea called Nothing in My Hand I Bring. That took five years, wow, but we got yes. probably the best of the books I've been involved in. Each chapter is very, very thorough from an apologetics perspective. Then I've got another book called Kids called Jesus Played Marbles, which is a moral yes. about you know, how it's a fictional story about Jesus in Nazareth when Jesus is only a you know, a young boy, 10 to 12 years of age, and how he deals with the persecution of another boy in the village. But the other side to that book, it's an apologetic defending the perpetual virginity of Our Lady. How? Because Jesus played this marble game with four other boys who are his brothers, according to Matthew and Mark. But we wow. identify brothers really are, that they're Jesus' first cousins, the children of Mary married to Alpheus or Cleopas, um, or Clopas, depending on the translation. And Clopas was a brother of St. Joseph. So these boys were actually the first cousins of Jesus. Um, that's the other Mary married to Clopas. Uh, and that's the purpose of that book. Because I think the, the issue of Mary perpetual virginity was a big one also back in those days when I was in high school and, and punched by back with Baptist cricket team. Now, Lady wasn't a favourite and all the dogmas weren't favourite beliefs, you know, by those evangelicals, etc., and the attacks on Mary's virginity was 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 regular. Yeah, wow, wow. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, we've got uh, uh, most of those titles on our website um, right now, and I invite anyone to to, to do that. And the latest and uh, updated version of Defend the Faith, I highly recommend it. Now, not only in a paperback version, but also in a digital version. People can download it, uh, a, a USB. Um, uh, which will have the, um, the the ebook version of these books, and also uh, the the um, the Blind Society actually read out uh, the book cover to cover, which was great, and, and so people are really enjoying the audio book of that. Sells quite well the audio version. Yes, so that was a product of one of my ex students who, sadly, about twenty years ago, had a car accident, went blind, and he got back to me and he made the offer that through the so the Blind Society have this book, Defend the Faith, made into an audio book, and it's very professionally done. And, uh, yeah, and we now have it, and I, I sell a couple of dozen a year. Um, and I think I think there will always be a demand for audio books. People want to listen to books when they're driving. Yeah, yeah, that's so true. I know it helped a, a, a friend uh, of mine uh, from Hillsong who um, was listening to it, and he, he said if it wasn't for that book and listening to that, that wouldn't have wouldn't have helped me and and so he was really influenced by, by listening to that audio book and that's uh, great the impact yeah. so thank you for what you're doing let's I, i'd love to give people a taste uh uh you as an apologist uh, you, you're so good quick on the draw when you're put on the spot <laughs> answering questions in all these times but some of the most common ones uh you, you probably get uh and, and i might start uh very very basic 
um, you touched on on Mary. Uh, why do can I touch on this? Uh, many many misconceptions about Mary. Do Catholics worship Mary? Um, and, and could you answer that question? What's your definition of the word worship? Okay. If we mean worship Mary in the same way we worship a God or the one true God, the answer is no, and it must be no. You're not Catholic if you met worship Mary with the worship of latria or adoration. Okay. That word or God alone, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, for the Lord, the divine person, our Lord Jesus Christ, for the divine Holy Spirit. Only they are to be worshipped with the worship of adoration. We don't give Mary adoration. We don't give Mary latria. We give Mary a lower form of worship. Now, here the word worship has different aspects to it. So the worship, so to speak, that we give Mary is the worship of dulia or hyperdulia for Mary because she's the greatest of all the saints. And dulia comes from the Greek word doulos, which means servant or slave. It's a type of veneration or honour or respect that we give to somebody because they have a quality about them that deserves that honour and respect. And Mary being the chosen elected vessel uh, to be the mother of God, the mother of Jesus Christ, and she was faithful in that her entire life, her entire existence, and is now in heaven, she deserves that honour and respect. So that's the type of worship, so to speak, we give Mary, and not the worship that's due to God alone, because then we'll be in violation of the first commandment. So she is a, um, I guess, she's created, but then given a title, Mother of God. So many people have an issue with that title, Mother of God. If she's Mother of God, therefore, does God have a mother, meaning does that make her God? <laughs> so yeah, could she, you clarify that? Does she pre-exist God? Does she give God yeah. existence? Does she create God? And if that's how it's understood, that would be blasphemous. Mm -hmm. But the original word in Greek, and now it's given to her by the Council of Ephesus, well, it existed before the Council of Ephesus. The Council of Ephesus in AD 431 formally acknowledged, canonized this term Theotokos or God-bearer. So when Mary, who's the mother of this child and gives birth to this child, who is this child? This child is a person. What type of person? Just a human person? No, a divine person, the second person of the Blessed Trinity, the Word of God, the Word made flesh. So the term Theotokos, God-bearer, and loosely translated as mother of God, is a term that acknowledges who Mary is mother of. It's a defense of the divinity of Jesus Christ, the singular person of Jesus Christ, that he is one person, a divine person, with the divine nature, the divine will, the divine intellect, not two persons, not just a human, not a human person, but a divine person. So this, if you abandon this term, and the history shows that when we abandon the term Theotokos or calling Mary mother of God, uh, we it leads us down a slippery slide that will compromise our understanding of who Jesus Christ is. Yeah, it's very important. And you're touching on, okay, this is a misconception people have. Jesus, who is Jesus? And so he is, is he fully human and fully God at the same time? And how do we, I mean, that, how do we get our heads around this? And how do we even come to terms? This was not something uh, humans just made up, right? It was revealed and they had to grapple with it. Can you tell us? Jesus as, as, as God the Son. Can we, can we sort of unpack that a little bit? Um, uh, how is Jesus 
Yes, uh, that's both God and man. Understood, because I, I have even people at work who, who don't understand this correctly. Yes. Jesus is, firstly, understand Jesus as the eternal word in heaven. He is the second person of the Blessed Trinity in heaven eternally before he became man. And he is God's own understanding of himself. This begetting of the son is God's own knowledge of himself. This second person then enters into time, into history, into creation and becomes man. Now, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, he is one person, a divine person, the second person of the Blessed Trinity, who assumes then a human nature. He has the divine nature, but he assumes a second nature, the a human nature, a created nature. So Jesus remains, though, one person, a divine person who takes on a human body, a human soul with a human intellect and a human will, though not becoming a second person, a human person. This is the mystery of the incarnation, and this is clarified by the Council of Chalcedon, uh, Ephesus and Chalcedon. Those two councils together, AD 431, AD 451, give us this understanding of who Jesus is. One person, the divine person, two natures, the divine nature, a human nature, true God and true man, while remaining one person, not becoming a second person. Okay, I don't know if that's helpful, but that's the technical side of understanding Jesus. But, yeah, I guess that addresses there's two things. Uh, if Je- but When Jesus, the eternal word, came down on heaven, it wasn't as though, so he did leave heaven. Is that right? So was heaven um, empty Was or no. who, who was in heaven? So could you... Trinity is still in heaven. The divinity, the divine person of Jesus as the eternal word is still there in heaven as part. I don't like to use the word part, but one of the persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the one God remains in heaven as the one God in Trinity. But at the same time, that this is another mystery. At the same time, the second person has entered into history, entered into time, entered into creation to walk among us with a human nature as one of us, as part of the human family. So Jesus, in his divinity, is in heaven and on earth at the same time, but his humanity is just on earth, but his humanity now has left the world, ascended back into heaven, enthroned at the right hand of the Father. So now when if we go to heaven, God willing, we see the Trinity, we'll understand the Trinity and why God has to be a Trinity, but we'll see the Trinity there, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but the Son will be incarnated and remains incarnated for all time um, as the one who's seated at the right hand of the Father, assumed in, sorry, ascended into heaven in fulfilment, by the way, of Daniel 7, the one who leaves and that goes to the Ancient of Days and uh, is King of Heaven and Earth and the one High Priest, one eternal High Priest of the Heavenly Temple. And that's what we'll see. And uh, I can't give you a, a better explanation than that because I don't <laughs> think any human words could actually give us a comprehensive understanding or picture. Only God has a comprehensive understanding of himself. We only have snippets, an apprehensive apprehensive understanding. Yes, apprehensive, yes. Yes. I'm actually, uh, it's a good opportunity, uh, and, and I won't dive into it now, but a little plug that later on this morning I'll be uh, interviewing Dr. Scott Hahn, and, and he's written a book, uh, Hope to Die, and we're going to be talking about the resurrection of the body. And uh, this is going to be a, a very uh, interesting topic because many people misunderstand that. We say it in the creed over and over, uh, the resurrection of the body, and what does that mean? Um, 
So that's and we under under emphasize. But if like, if I could make this suggestion when Please. you interview Scott, ask him about the connection between the Eucharist and the resurrected body, because that's yeah. what. John is ultimately about who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him and I will raise him up on the last day so we rise up in a glorified body principally because we've been faithful to Christ and received his glorified body in the Eucharist I want people to understand the importance of the Eucharist that it's the food of resurrection the antidote to death okay that's what St Ignatius of Antioch called it the antidote to death the, <laughs> And the food of resurrection, the food of the glorified body. Well, let's, and let's it's transition. In the creed, but we don't fully appreciate yes. it. So true. I, I do want to, the Eucharist was the other topic I wanted to, to, to raise because many of these questions are, are touching on all these, uh, uh, and we're not going to get through all of them. There's, there's purgatory, there's one on the Orthodox Church. I've, I'm, I'm going through a list here. But, Robert, um, you touched on the Eucharist now. The basic understanding that this is a real issue among Christians who, who don't believe in the literal understanding. Did Jesus truly mean that that piece of bread was himself? And now can we understand that to be literally Jesus himself or is it a symbol of him? It's literally Jesus himself. I think I'm reading the book at the moment. I recommend this book by a, a Dr. Feingold. Uh, on the Eucharist, um, and it's an outstanding work. It's a huge tome by Emmaus Academic Publishing. It came out in 2018. Okay. It sums up everything about the Eucharist you need to know. But absolutely, and, and when, of course, you start with the institution narratives and Matthew 26, etc., of the, of the Last Supper, take, eat, this is my body, take, drink, this is my blood. But also, you've got to turn to St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 Corinthians 11, makes it very clear the language there is very literal, that if you don't receive worthily, you're profaning the body and blood of the Lord, etc. What convinced me, though, about the Eucharist being the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ, soul and divinity, etc. In those early days when I was with the uh, Punchbowl Baptists and my friend Stephen and, and grappling with this issue and not being certain about the Eucharist, what made me certain about Catholic teaching was reading the Church Fathers from the 2nd century. St. Ignatius of Antioch, St. Polycarp of Smyrna, St. Justin Martyr, St. Irenaeus of Lyon, there we see, particularly with Ignatius, Justin and Irenaeus, clear teaching that it's no longer bread and wine, that through the prayer of the presider, that's the presbyter, that's the priest, it changed to be the body and blood of Jesus. And then Irenaeus builds on us, builds on that to tell us that it's a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice of Christians in fulfilment of the prophecy in, in Malachi chapter 1, verses 10 to 11. I have no doubt about it anymore. I've had, that's why I'm a daily communicant. I know what the Eucharist is. I know that it's the fruit of eternal life. I know it's the gift promised by Jesus recorded in John chapter 6, verse 27, when he offers a new bread that I will give to you, a new manna for a new exodus to the new Jerusalem. Um, that's what and I recommend you read another book on this by Brant Petrie on the you know, Jewish origins, the Jewish roots of the Eucharist, a yes. magnificent work, very simple to read, very exciting book, a lot to learn from that book. And we can't, this is why I'm grieving at the moment with the coronavirus restrictions that we yes. don't have for the, the Eucharist. Though spiritual communion is important, is valuable, and does give us grace, Jesus didn't offer us spiritual communion he offered us his actual communion with his body and blood and that's available every day and i look forward to the time when we can access it again on a daily basis 
Yeah, very good point. Um, hopefully people, uh, you don't know what you um, have until you lose it, right? You don't appreciate it. And uh, many people may misinterpret or, or may take it for granted that we're actually receiving. Uh, what you're saying is we're receiving Jesus himself, who is God, mm. um, and, and you mentioned his resurrected body. Therefore, we are going to be one with God by receiving that bread, which is looks and tastes like bread but no longer bread. Um, it does it does mess with the human mind here. Unless faith comes in, how do you uh, really understand this? But there's so much evidence, that, as you were talking about, in Scripture, the, the Old Testament leading into the New and, and how there was a case unpacking uh, all the all the um, revelation that God was doing, you know, with the manna in heaven and all the, the Passover meal and all this was leading up to a, a climax in the Last Supper and then on the cross and and, and still the institution of the Eucharist. But great. If I could just jump in there, another about the Eucharist and the Eucharistic miracles. Um, yeah, there's so good point. And they've been verified by scientists and doctors who are not Catholic. You just speak of Lanciano, the miracle there. Um, which was tested in 1971. Um, you have the miracle of the hosts of Siena, which were tested four times throughout the 20th century. They're just two, and there's so many others, outstanding Eucharistic miracles that prove, again, in another way, in another method, that the, the bread and wine is no longer just bread and wine. It has changed to something different, another substance, the body and blood of Christ. And by the way, I'll throw this in. When the scientists test this, when they test the blood, it's always the same type. It's type AB. And the blood on the Shroud of Turin is also AB. And, and the blood on the sedarium, that's the facial uh, cloth, that the cloth that depicts the face of Christ, is also type AB. So we know from all those cross sources that um, Jesus' blood was type AB. I'm so glad you said that because I was going to mention the Shroud of Turin and, and, and that was going to be that. That's right there. I'm holding my CD because... That is the image, Shroud of Turin, those who can see mm. that. Um, and yeah. that is um, another proof of, um, uh, and, and if you like, evidence that, yeah, G Jesus himself uh, rose from the dead and we've got that that, buried, that cloth um, to prove it. And that blood type is quite powerful. Um, I understand there are a lot of um, scientists who were not Christian going through the testing and some have converted in seeing the results of these of these tests Um the Shroud of Turin as one example, but many of these other ones investigating these Eucharistic miracles. Have you personally seen any Eucharistic miracle? Yeah, I was in Italy in 1998 and I visited Siena and uh, I was a little bit cheeky and I broke away from the tour group and I said, I'm going to find this church of St. Francis. And I had a map and I went there and I arrived about one o'clock in the afternoon. And I searched everywhere in this very large church for where this miracle could be located. I couldn't find it. Then I saw a man sweeping the floor with a broom and I asked him about, does this miracle, is, does it, is it here in this church? And he said, yes. And I said, I'm from Australia. I want to see it. Is it possible that I could see it? He said, it's siesta time now. The church is closed. <laughs> But then he identified himself as a priest and a priest who'd worked in Australia. And he said, because you're from Australia and I've been to Australia, I'll show you the miracle. So he took me to the front of the church. We turned right. Then we turned right again to a side chapel, a very beautiful one. And there was this pink marble wall there, which he took a key, unlocked it and moved it to the right. And there it was. The miracles, miraculous host of Siena from the year 1730, still preserved in this container. And then he ordered me 
and there were some others who joined me by then, to kneel down and he said three times, you're coming to a door, not as a tourist, you're coming to a door, you're coming to a door. And then he put the host in this container right up to my eyes, only about six or eight inches away, and I could see the host. They were like the size of 50-cent coins, big and pristine white. And they're now 290 years old and they have remained fresh and they do not decay, they do not go stale, they do not disintegrate. That's a miracle in itself. Look at that. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. That's, I encourage you to investigate uh, those watching this and, and, and curious. Um, really investigate the Eucharistic miracles. Read through John 6 as a classic in the Gospels. Uh, get to know more. Brad Peter's book. But Get Defend the Faith. Can I encourage all the viewers to get Defend the Faith? Um, it is a substantial. What? There it is. Have a, have a, look how thick it is. If you give us a side profile as well. 500 pages. How many questions do you address in that? Uh, 166 questions at 50, 50 topics. 50 chapters, 50 topics. This is, this is fantastic. Thank you for your effort, um, your um, commitment to the faith and, and, and teaching the faith. And it's not over. We've got an exciting look. There's only a couple of minutes, but an exciting little uh, a sneak preview of what we're working on behind the scenes. If maybe we should give a little plug to this, Robert, um, uh, the idea of reviving uh, formal studies of of apologetics evangelization faith formation um do you want to do you want to unveil it i'll let you sort of touch on what we're working on in the background here well yeah it's we're gonna uh Charbel has agreed to work on a project called the perusier academy and my thoughts about this originally back a year ago was that we need somehow to restore in Australia the great work that Frank Sheed did back in the early 20th century, early to mid-20th century. He trained 600 people to be active apologists. And we need to see a restoration of apologetics. The apologetics took a nosedive after the 60s, which was tragic. The Second Vatican Council, I can quote you quotes from the council and post-conciliar popes all supporting apologetics, new apologetics, even Pope Francis and uh, um, uh, Evangelii Gaudium, paragraph 132, called for a creative apologetics. We need to restore apologetics as mainstream in the church, not a fringe activity. The early church apologetics was naturally allied to evangelization. Apologetics has to come back in the home, in the school, in the parish, in the wider church. There are too many people in the church who engage in apologetics only against apologetics, okay? Yeah, we, yeah. And Perugia Academy, I hope, will be one instrument whereby we can get people who are enthusiastic and want to learn more about their faith and then give them that edge where they can go out and be active in the world in whatever way they feel called to defend the faith against whatever might arise. We need to be people who give other people a leg up, encouragement, and we need to leave a legacy. Shabu, you told me yourself, when you need an apologist, you turn to the same five people all the That's time. Right. Okay? Right. And we need to build that base, to build that pool. I've had young people have come up to me and they say, Robert, how do I become an apologist? It's not a, a, a just do this course or that. It comes from God. It's an inspiration. It's a desire. It's an enthusiasm. It's a keenness to know your faith, to live your faith, to defend your faith, to proclaim your faith, to give an account for the hope that's in us. And we need to be able to galvanize people, to give them a confidence, a self-belief, and send them out to be the apologist God calls them to be. And I hope this academy gets off the ground 
And thank you for, you know, taking this lead here, Shabal, to and the initiative to, to make, to create a platform for this, where we can have gather the best lecturers in Australia, the best teachers in Australia, and provide an electronic tr platform whereby people can access lectures, learn their faith, do assessments, be awarded, be acknowledged, and then go out into the world. That's right. Amen. Bring it on. We ask for prayers. Please pray for this project. It's an important one that it runs. We, we get it off the ground. It, it will be smooth. We have our best Australian professors uh, in, in, the, in the space of theology and scripture, uh, philosophy, uh, as well as international. So we've already been speaking to some international uh, lecturers as well. We hope that we can invite them over. We can do some intensives here. We're going to put this online, have an online platform. So we're going to take away all of the um, uh, restrictions. We want to make this as accessible as possible available to anyone in the world and and really to to, to grow the next leadership uh, in, in this space so thank you Robert for your commitment in this and 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 more on this very soon hopefully we'll get you on maybe later in the year as we get closer to launching and uh, we talk a bit about what it really looks like as we firm up um, the structure and the and the whole process of how we're going to roll it out but uh, looking forward to that can I just do a plug for your uh, YouTube channel you have a YouTube channel um, if mm -hmm. I invite people to subscribe to that, you uh, upload at least, uh, I'm seeing a new video every week at least. Uh, uh, it's quite quite good and you've got thousands of followers. Uh, wh where do we go on YouTube to find that? Yeah, Robert had a defending Catholicism. Yeah, uh, it's been a great blessing. Thank you for joining um, and, uh, and we are out of time.